Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I have left to go on holiday. So my colleague Stuart Watson will be summarising the week's news and updates this week and next. I did have time before I left, however, to record two interviews. The first was with the always stimulating Simon Edelston, manager of the Midwind International Investment Trust, which sits in the global equity sector and competes against the likes of Scottish Mortgage, FNC, Whitton, Alliance Trust, Monks and others. Some of the things we'll be discussing later are, where are we in the market cycle? What does he make of the AI-related boom on Wall Street? And how is he positioning his portfolio as a result? You can then also hear my recent conversation with Paul and Richard Pindar, respectively the chairman and CEO of Literacy Capital, a private equity trust that has performed extremely well since its listing on the London market in June 2021, since when the shares have risen no less than threefold and they're up uh, 30% this year as well. Unlike most of its peers in the private equity sector, Literacy Capital runs a concentrated portfolio for an annual management fee of just 0.9%, extremely modest by private equity standards. It has no performance fee either, and denotes a, a similar amount to its annual management charge each year to a range of literacy charities, hence its name and ticker, book, B-O-O-K. The founders and other family members own a high proportion of the shares, which, as I said, are up an impressive 30% so far this year, while the trust, having slipped to a discount in the second half of last year, is now back trading at a small premium to NAV. The in-depth trust profile, available to subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle this week, features the Mercantile Trust, ticker MRC, managed by Guy Anderson of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And that will be followed by a profile of an interesting newcomer to the sector, Hydrogen One Capital Growth, ticker HGEN. All the other regular features in the Moneymakers Circle, including links to all the latest Investment Trust RNS announcements and a summary of the week's price, NAV and discount movements, are there as normal. The second part of my conversation with Russell Napier, the financial historian and market strategist, in which we turn to discussing what investors should be doing if, as he believes and explained last week, we are heading into a period of financial repression, that's going to be held over until next week. As well as the normal roundup of investment trust news, you will be able to hear next week also my interview with Jeanette Rutterford, who is the Emeritus Professor of Finance at the Open University, discussing some of the lessons that investors can draw from the long history of investment trusts based on research, which she carried out with her academic colleague, Dimitris Sotiropoulos. After that, Exceptionally, the podcast will be released a couple of days later than usual on a Tuesday rather than Saturday, and then it's back to uh, business as normal. Over now to Stuart Watson for his uh, summary of the week's announcements and price and discount movements in the investment trust sector. The UK stock market fell again this week, continuing its trend of the last month or so. It was down about 0.5% as of Friday morning. The Investment Trust Index, that was down about the same amount at the close of trade on Thursday. The average trust discount remained at a similar level, just over 
So that's still a little wider than the 13% it started the year at. We did see gilt yields fall back a little after their recent increase. For example, the 10-year gilt yield, that decreased from 4.34% at the end of the last week to 4.14% as of Friday morning. And there was a similar fall in the yields of treasuries as well. And this was after the US government finally agreed a deal to raise its debt ceiling. Now, attention will no doubt turn to the next US interest rate decision, and that's on the 14th of June, and the Bank of England follows the week after. Both these rate decisions will come a day after we get the latest monthly inflation figures for each country. In terms of the biggest movers, we saw growth-style trusts among the risers, trusts such as Molten Ventures, HG Capital, Bailey Gifford US Growth, and both the Polar Capital and Allianz Technology Trusts, all probably still benefiting from NVIDIA's very bullish earnings outlook at the end of last week, which helped US technology stocks. There was a variety of alternative asset trusts amongst the biggest fallers, but there were no big declines and only a handful were down by more than 5% on the week. Turning now to results, we had four annual results, all of which were for the year to the 31st of March. First up is Edinburgh Investment Trust. That's ticker EDIN, and that marked three years since the current management team took charge. The UK Equity Income Trust, that saw a positive NAV return for the period of 7.9%, and that was ahead of the 2.9% produced by the FTSE All Share. The full year dividend, that was 26.2p, and that was a 5.6% increase on last year. Now, a lot of the outperformance of Edinburgh came from a technical factor relating to the way trust debts are valued. Edinburgh repaid the last of its long-standing debentures in September, and it managed to reduce the interest paid from 7.75% to 2.44%, and that's an annual saving of about $5 million in interest costs. This interest rate was agreed all the way back in September 2021, so the revaluation of this debt at fair value, now that interest rates are much higher, that accounted for about half of Edinburgh's NAV gain last year. However, the NAV return since the new managers took charge all the way back in March 2020, that's been impressive. It was ahead of its benchmark in both its first and second years, and it's ahead by about 18.5 percentage points overall. Sticking with UK equity income, we had figures from CT UK High Income, that's ticker CHI. This is one of the smaller trusts in the sector with net assets of about 100 million and a dual class share structure. The NAV return for the period was minus 0.4%, and that again compares to 2.9% for the FTSE All Share. And here the underperformance arose from not owning oil majors like BP and Shell, and also not owning other larger FTSE 100 stocks such as AstraZeneca that did quite well last year. And this trust is more focused towards mid-cap stocks instead. The yield on this trust, that's a very chunky 6.7%, but it's worth noting this is only about two-thirds covered by the net income from the portfolio and getting back to having the dividend fully covered by earnings is one of the trust's near-term objectives. Moving on to UK smaller companies, Adisian, ticker OIT, also annual results. Here there was a negative 2.2% return on an NAV basis. This was quite a lot better than the 13.4% decline in its UK small cap benchmark. And it's five years now since Adisian was listed, and it's returned about 10% a year since then and that's compared to its benchmark, which has essentially been flat over that same period. Edition does expect the small cap market to improve now that valuations are a lot more attractive, but it did highlight the fact that it would be surprised if it retained its 10% annual lead over its benchmark in a rising market, 
given the nature of its investment approach, which is more market neutral. The shares have traded at a small premium for much of the last two years now, and it's managed to issue a decent amount of new shares as a result of that. The share count last year was up an impressive 17%, and that was on the back of a 9% increase the year before. TR Property, ticker TRY, which invests mostly in UK and European listed property companies, that also released annual results. And there's no surprise here to see there was a very large NAV loss of 35.5%. And that was following the sudden decrease in property values last autumn. This was similar to the 34% drop in the trust's benchmark. Obviously, the fall in property values is magnified by the borrowing that the property companies have. And also in TR Properties case, its NEV is based on the share prices of its listed investments, and they've suffered from widening discounts as well. On top of that, TR Property also carries a bit of gearing itself, and that was also a negative last year. There was, however, a 7% increase in the dividend, and that's fully covered once again. Underlying revenue was up even more at 26%, but the managers did highlight that a significant element of this was due to timing differences due to the way of when their holdings pay their dividends. And it said earnings might fall next year, partly due to the reversal of this effect, and also because some German residential and its Swedish holdings have either recently suspended or cut their dividends. And as we've seen with other property trusts, the outlook, one of them, cautious optimism, I'd say, highlighting that rents are still rising and there's generally not much in the way of oversupply. And these are two factors that are rarely seen when property values do decline. TR Property has also benefited from takeovers of Industrials REIT and CT Property recently, and it's obviously keen to see other companies in its portfolio follow their example. Also had two interim figures, and they were for the six months to 31st of March. They were from AVI Global, ticker AGT, and JP Morgan Japanese, that's ticker JFJ. Turning to other trust news, the Home REIT saga continued this week with the release of some of the key findings from its internal investigation, which was carried out by an independent firm of forensic accountants. As often has been the case with Home REIT this year, the announcement raised more questions than it answered, unfortunately. For example, there are arrangements for the refurbishment of properties and the nature of settling rent arrears that weren't brought to the board's attention by Alvarium, the former investment advisor, and also a number of areas where the accountants said they couldn't draw any firm conclusions based on the information that they were provided with. Also, other instances where HomeReit felt unable to make the full details public at this time due to other ongoing investigations. The board said it's still considering the findings of this report and also what action it may take as a result. So sadly, it seems there's still a long way to go before this saga concludes and before the shares can begin trading again. And finally, we had Aquila European Renewables, ticker AERI. That's due to hold its first continuation vote at its AGM later this month. And it said it's bringing forward its next continuation vote from 2027 to 2024 after speaking to its major shareholders. The board said it was pleased with the level of support for its portfolio and for its investment advisor. However, it noted the concerns of some shareholders regarding liquidity and immediate growth prospects. Aquila European was listed in June 2019 and it's managed to grow to a reasonable size since. It's got a market cap of just under 400 million. But like most renewable trusts, it's seen a discount appear over the last year. Although a discount of around 12%, it's similar to the sector average and it's also much less than most of the other newer trusts in the renewable space. Next up is my conversation with Simon Edelston. 
As listeners may recall, after our last conversation some months back, it was announced that Simon is retiring as the lead manager of Midwind in October this year, after nine successful years at the helm. His co-manager, Alex Illingworth, has also decided to leave, and so the board has recruited a new lead manager, Alex Sanich, with effect from this autumn. After several years trading at a premium, reflecting its consistent outperformance, but a rare year of relative underperformance against his peer group last year, the shares in Midwind have recently slipped to a modest discount, which the trust is countering with regular share buybacks as part of its discount control mechanism. Let's start by talking about what everybody else is talking about at the moment, which is artificial intelligence and the extraordinary performance of NVIDIA, amongst others, and the fact that a small handful of large, let's call them tech companies, but just for shorthand, very large, well-known companies like Meta, Tesla, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, and Microsoft, they've been galloping at an extraordinary pace. Some of the figures are quite remarkable. They're up, uh, you know, 40, 50%, and in the case of Meta, up by more than 100%. So are we living through another period of, of madness, or is this something that is based on some really good fundamentals, Simon? Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for asking me to come on your podcast again. Always good fun. And yes, you picked another interesting moment. I think as well as my retirement from Artemis this year, the other thing I might note is that I think I'm the last surviving European internet analyst left over from 2000. So I wrote some notes when I was a stockbroker at the peak of the last internet bubble, trying to justify the valuations of various things like T-Online and FreeServe and all these companies, all of which dominated markets at the time. The share price movements of those stocks for a few years Completely dominated index movements, very narrow market, just stuck in tech. And for a while, around the top of that, analysts started inventing new valuation measures in order to justify why these share prices should go up. The trouble that you have when you start getting into periods where you're selling stories rather than fundamentals is that nobody knows what the share price could be. I mean, for me, NVIDIA is an amazing company which has got very lucky, really, that its graphics chips, which were invented for computer games, have ended up being the state-of-the-art chip, not just for mining Bitcoin the other year, but now for um, processing data for artificial intelligence. So some of that's planning, I'm sure. Some of it was fully seen by the management of the company, and some of it is luck. But however much is one and however much is the other, it's on 26 times sales, Yes, I was going to mention and, that. And 197 times on earnings or something like that. Anyway, not quite the magic 200 figure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could come up with any earnings figure you want because, of course, the earnings are a long, long way away. Now, fortunately, in a way, the whole artificial intelligence thing, the other thing I should point out is that this is not a new story. Artificial intelligence has been with us for a very long time. <laughs> you know, the new story here is a bit on top of it called ChatGPT, which you can now download from the App Store and have a go at it and see whether you think it'll solve your essay crisis. It seems to be quite good at writing essays for teenagers and other generic, not particularly difficult to think through things. So, you know, we have reached an age where computers can pretend to be like people quite well which is what used to be called the Turing test. Alan Turing set this test in the 50s. You know, how would you be able to tell when a computer gets clever enough, intelligent enough, so that you can't tell whether you're speaking to a computer or to a person? Okay, so there are now some chat apps which could fool you and do fool people. 
into thinking they're speaking to a person. So that's a significant moment. And no doubt there'll be some very low value human activities would be replaced by. But when it comes to investing in stocks and shares, well, the way I like to invest my money and my, my people who are kind enough to trust me with their money is I always want to know why the share price is what it is. I want to be able to feel that there's some cash flow under that to justify that, which I can put my finger on in a few years' time. Now, NVIDIA is growing extremely quickly, but to get from 26 times sales to any sort of cash flow-backed valuation, you have to work out how much of those sales end up being cash of value to shareholders. And that figure is probably never going to be much more than about 20% after you paid staff and development and designing new chips and so on and so forth. And so if you do the maths, this very large company is going to have to grow its sales in the region of five or six times on my maths to justify the current share price after the move last week. So I don't mind not owning it and missing out. And the reason for that is that there are lots of other companies around it, if this AI story is really strong, where you can justify the valuations, which is still expensive, but they're just not that expensive. They're not eye-wateringly expensive. And funnily enough, we got so many of these other stocks in the Midwine Investment Trust that we actually outperformed the market over this run on the AI stocks that we own without having any NVIDIA. So NVIDIA cost us relative nearly a percent, I suppose. But we got enough other things like Accenture, the world's biggest IT consulting company. I mean, that's a sort of classic Midwind chicken play. Whenever anything goes wrong in IT, somebody has to ring up Accenture and ask them for help so they get more business. So there are these other ways. You know, there's this old saying in farm management, when somebody discovers gold, go and buy the local hardware store and sell people shuffles. And, you know, generally speaking, when you've got one of these eureka moments, there are ways of investing around the subject so that you benefit without having to take that level of valuation risk. Yeah. But what's odd about this, of course, is that this is happening at a time when interest rates are rising quite sharply. Bond yields are going up and the Federal Reserve is maybe done now, but uh, other central banks, as we know, are probably not done yet, including our own illustrious organization. So this is slightly unusual. Does this tie in at all with what's going on in terms of interest rates and so on? Typically, these bubbles, if it is a bubble, if it is a speculative bubble, or very high valuations tend to happen when bond yields are very low, don't they? So I think you paid a very accurate picture here. Inflation has come down a little bit, which has made tech investors relax a little bit. But it is still stubbornly high, uh, particularly in the UK, but also in America. It's not coming down to two anytime soon. And interest rates are not at a level which will bring it down to two. The UK rates, everyone's throwing their hands up in horror in the last few days and said, oh dear, the Bank of England's out of control. They're going to have to raise British interest rates possibly to five and a quarter percent. Well, the last inflation print here was eight and a quarter percent. So unless you've got a very good reason to think that core inflation is going to be falling down below five and a quarter percent, five and a quarter percent may not be enough to get inflation under control in the UK, especially if you need to stop people demanding very high wage increases, which is the new source of inflation, not what Putin did to the oil price. That's last year's story. You know, at the moment, we've got a wage price spiral. And I'm afraid in the past, wage price spirals tend to be broken by fairly brutal acts through the interest rate market, including stopping the labour market being so tight. People will strike for more pay if their labour is heavily in demand. And it is. So why shouldn't they carry on with the wage price spiral at the moment? You know, it's not like the Bank of England has done anything about it. Anyhow, 
to draw that back to stocks and shares. So I think that there was a moment where US tech investors thought, oh, the interest rate worry has gone away. We don't have to worry about that too much. So people went back into tech. But you're quite right. You know, now that you've got whatever it is, 4% bond rates in America, the discount rate on any growth stock is much higher. The market will value short-term earnings and will tend to go back to valuing earnings today ahead of earnings a long way out. Where I think that that really affects stock selection, though, is not in the very high growth areas. It's in the mediocre growth areas. So I can't see how you can justify tech companies on 30 times earnings, which have earnings, which are only growing their top line at you know six, seven, eight percent because inflation's around that level. That's not a lot of growth. And so one of the stories about the big tech stocks from last year and the year before was simply that their top line growth was not what they claimed it was going to be. Now some of those stocks have run. So I am much less in sympathy with Apple, for instance, share price shooting up on this. Apple is not an AI stock. It's just a very large stock, which people now think is a safe place to put an awful lot of money. But it's not a cheap share, and it's not growing particularly fast. It's very, very profitable, of course, but it hasn't come up with a new product for years. And so why should that stock be running this fast? The common sense valuation here, according to Bloomberg, Apple's on 30 times earnings with a yield of a half a percent. And the top line growth last I looked at this one is 6%. I know it's the biggest stock in the world, and I know that I've underperformed because I don't own it. But in terms of how I like to invest money, I can't see any reason why anyone should want to own those shares. Not on that valuation. Sorry. Not in this market. So the way in which you can balance things off, I think, Jonathan, is where you are investing in growth, make sure there's plenty of growth. And AI and the area around AI, I think you can say there's plenty of growth. And then you need to balance your portfolio off by having some value in markets where inflation is going to persist. And there's nothing contradictory about having value in one part of your portfolio and growth in another part. The funny thing is that there are some fund management companies who said, oh, we only want to do one of these two things, which strikes me as slightly odd. You know, we're only going to do deep value. That's all that we're ever going to do. We're going to pretend that growth investing doesn't work. And the opposite. I mean, both seem very strange decisions uh, because, I mean, globally, particularly, it's not as if growth works part of the time and then value works another part of the time. Sometimes value works with Japan at the moment. Value is working at the same time as growth working in America. Markets don't have to be that way. It depends what the share prices are, what the value for money is, and also what the growth potential is. I might just throw one thing in which I think you might find entertaining and amusing. I was reading an old book about the UK equity market in the 1970s and how to invest to make money during a period of, particularly in that last period, 78 through when inflation came back with a vengeance, the oil shock had gone away. The famous thing is you need to have money in gold and nickel, so on and so forth, which is fine. And value stocks, because some of them got taken over. But the other side of it, one of the best performing shares in the UK equity market was Rakel. <laughs> so you could still make money in a growth stock as long as it was a proper growth stock. And it happened to be having one of its best growth periods. So that's all I say about technology and growth investing in general. Just be very fussy and make sure there's enough growth, but don't have none. You don't need to. You just balance portfolio. Well, I was going to mention that. I mean, you do own some of those names that I've mentioned, don't you? I mean, you're not, it's not like you're a blanket objection to those. Just to remind us which of the big names that you do own. Amazon, for example, I think is in your portfolio somewhere, is it not? 
Yeah, so the biggest holdings that we have, which have benefited from the AI story, and so they should because they are major AI companies, are Alphabet, where Google, of course, has been doing AI since Google was invented. It is what Google does. You know, they take what we type in, they store it, and then they use it to make money out of us. (laughs) And that's the core business. And then, of course, YouTube as well feeds off what its viewers do by way of their activity and sends us more entertainment or information according to their analysis of how we behave. Microsoft, of course, in a way set off this AI run by announcing that they were linking ChatGPT with the Bing search engine that they have in order to try to compete with Google. So there's that. But on top of that, their Azure web hosting business is offering AI services as well to large corporations, where the larger applications of AI are probably in helping big companies, governments, that sort of thing, offer better services cheaper and more efficiently. Don't we all wish that that would happen? So uh, that's the side where more technology can be deployed and this sort of technology seems applicable. And then, yes, we also have a decent size holding in Amazon, which we've fortunately topped up around the uh, start of this AI run, where, again, Amazon Web Services will benefit from growth in their cloud computing. It was only a few months ago people thought, Cloud computing was mature and waning. (laughs) So it shows how quickly the tech analysts can change their minds on these things. And also, of course, as far as a a sort of meta Facebook's concerned, it was only a few months ago everybody was saying, why are they wasting all this money on the metaverse? And it's not serious stuff. And now suddenly they're soaring back into favor again. So the meta shares had gone down a lot before they went up. This stock's just gone up 50%. But yes, the leader of meta... (laughs) hops from one hot subject or piece of jingo to another one. But actually, they have done an extraordinary thing, Meta, in AI, that they've offered their AI large language model in the open source world. I mean, what they've done looks very, very advanced and very powerful. What is not clear is how they're going to make any money out of it. You might remember they bought WhatsApp, and we now all use WhatsApp, but Again, it's not at all clear whether they make any money out of it. So uh, from a shareholder point of view, if you own MetaShares, you're still basically buying Facebook advertising, which is not something that I would particularly want to join in. But the shares got very oversold last year, even though I'm very, very sceptical of it. We actually had a look at it, missed it, but uh, had a look at it just on the core earnings last year. So a lot of this run this year in in these stocks is bouncing back. Yeah. Tell us then, as someone who's been in fund manager for a long time and indeed Going back to your days writing notes about internet stocks that couldn't really be justified in any sensible metric, how much of these kind of runs we've seen is driven by A, passive funds, but B, fear of missing out on behalf of fund managers who have numbers to post and uh, you know performance to report and so on? Is that a big factor? Do you think we're seeing some of that going on as well at the moment? Yes, I'm afraid, sir, the active fund management industry has been facing some outflows the last couple of years. Looking at the active results compared with passive, particularly last year, they were dreadful. The industry did a bad job. And it is particularly unusual and unhelpful for active fund managers, including myself, to underperform the market in a falling market, because generally active fund managers are better than the index in a falling market. And certainly, if you go back to 2000 to 2003, the funds I run outperformed at that falling market when I was working with Niels Torp by about 50% because we just avoided these bubble stocks. And so the outperformance of active was dramatic, massive. It defined investment returns for more than a decade. 
and it came in a falling market after a bubble burst. And so once you've lived through that sort of thing, you look at a bubble like this, and this is a mini bubble. I don't have any problem about that. The same valuation issues are there. But you don't need to take it on too aggressively. As I mentioned, the Midwine Trust has got a number of holdings which have benefited from, from this AI run. The AI story is a real story. But you can, we can just step away from them bit by bit. We'll just trim our holdings very slowly. Uh, we've also got some chip stocks, by the way. We have TSMC, LAN, which is a fab supply company, and Synopsis. So you add it all up, we might have, goodness, I suppose 20% of the fund, which has benefited from this run. And of course, that bit of the fund has now become quite large, which means that all the, all the other stocks we like have become smaller. And we can just slowly take little bits of money off the table as the valuation seems silly. And where are we going to be putting the money? Well, probably in deep value Japanese stocks and things like that. This is just rebalancing a portfolio. It's foolish to try to time when a bubble's going to burst, but it's also madness not to act and not to do what the fundamentals tell you to do. And the fundamentals tell you to take some money off the table and move it somewhere where you've got more obvious asset backing as much as cash flow backing. That's even if you have to run the risk of then of underperforming and people... Oh, you have to run that risk. I mean, to be absolutely clear about this, you're never going to outperform if you're not prepared to underperform. That's the job. I mean, for the very large fund management companies, I've never worked for one, you can just sense that their talented managers are put under pressure to be closer to the index. And what's the point in the public paying fees for that? But, you know, you're trying to run hundreds of billions of pounds. It's very difficult to run these companies. So, you know, I've always wanted to work in boutiques so that I'm allowed to get on and do what I think is right. Yeah. So you mentioned Japan already. I think you made quite a lot of changes to your portfolio last year, which was interesting. You don't do that every year on the same scale. But people have been saying Japan is beginning to look attractive for a while now. Uh, it hasn't, you know, quite the levels it was way back 20 years ago when people started saying the same thing. Well, what's the case for being enthusiastic about Japan at this particular point, given all the disappointments we've had over the years? Yes, I'm becoming a notorious bore on Japan because uh, I keep recommending it. Um, we've been positive on Japan since we took over the trust, goodness, in 2014. And even at that point, it had just had a bit of a run because... Arbe had come in and you had Arbenomics and some of the stocks which trade below book value were performing quite well. And, and that's the sort of stocks which are working again in Japan at the moment. So Japan, from a valuation discipline point of view, is the opposite of America. And it, it hasn't always been. So people have been bullish on Japan, you know, for 30 years. I mean, every now and again. But the fact of the matter is the average multiple of earnings of Japanese stocks didn't fall below the average multiple of earnings of American stocks until about three or four years ago. And it's only in the last couple of years that the yield on Japanese equities has risen above European and American equities. That very simply tells you, you know, you're being paid a high yield now in a naturally strong currency most of the time, the yen, which hasn't been strong, but often it is a, a safe haven currency for various reasons. But the yield on the Nikkei now is 2% for this year, which compares with 1.6% for the S&P. Three and a half percent for Europe, so it, it's not as high as Europe. But that value for money in Japan, just on the yield alone against America, tells you that things are a bit different. Um, but why now? So there's always been this good value. There's always been this unquestionable argument that when you buy a Japanese equity, you buy a very big business, which doesn't make much money. I mean, not all of them, but often. 
So you tend to get, per share, you tend to get a lot of sales and a lot of market share, but not very much profit. The return on capital tends to be a lot lower than in America. The margins tend to be a lot lower because these companies have been run to have very high market shares rather than very high profits. Now, the reason that this is changing now is threefold. Firstly, Japan and Asia came out of lockdown and COVID very, very late. So China only stopped their zero COVID policy right at the end of last year. So you have some simple reopening issues coming up in Asia. People expected this to produce a big bounce in the Chinese economy. Unfortunately, that's rather lagging, particularly because they've got problems with their property sector. But the Japanese economy seems to be bouncing back quite nicely including them now welcoming tourists again for the first time, which they've been closed for tourism for three years, and it makes quite a big difference. But that also has led to Japan having inflation. Now, it's not had inflation for 30 years. I mean, famously, it's had deflation. And the inflation in Japan, again, which the Japanese central bank thought was temporary and uh, that it would go away quickly, like all central banks think inflation will go away quickly. It's now hanging around a bit, and lo and behold, it's turning up in wage awards, which nobody expected to persist. I mean, there are 2.8% or something like that. In our terms, they sound very low, but in Japanese terms, these are unprecedented over the last 30 years. And so there is pressure on the Bank of Japan to put interest rates up. And so we have two big holdings in Japanese banks. If Japanese banks are allowed to put interest rates up, they will start making some money from making very little money indeed on their book. And so these are shares which could shoot up very quickly just if the new governor of the Bank of Japan raises rates. And some feel that the whole policy of Kuroda, the departed one, has now been shown to work. He kept rates very low, he did lots of bond market buying, so much that the Bank of Japan owns most of the Japanese bond market, I mean, half of it in some durations. So they've reached the end of the road on QE. They've just run out of bonds to buy in some parts of the curve. But also, it just makes sense for them to put rates up. It's not necessary to keep this zero interest rate policy there, and that would be very good for some of our stocks. And then lastly, the new president of the Tokyo Stock Exchange wrote a letter to a 1,000 companies, over a 1,000 companies, whose shares trade below book value, and said, what are you going to do about it? You know, you're not looking after your shareholders. In the case of a lot of these companies, they could just use their very strong balance sheets, buy back shares. And because the shares are trading at such big discount, they're almost like investment trusts, but not quite. Um, but you could buy back your shares and enhance shareholder value just because they trade so far below intrinsic value that any time they buy back shares would raise returns for the remaining shareholders. So that level of public pressure has never been put on Japanese stocks. And we're already seeing, we've got a couple of stocks in the portfolio which trade on these big discounts and are perfectly good companies. They're not growth companies. They're just, you get whatever, 200 yens worth of value for every 100 yen you spend buying a share. And these shares have already started going up. They started performing quite nicely in the trust because they've already making announcements about how they're going to close that valuation gap. Yeah. So the only thing that hasn't happened really is that the yen hasn't yet started to recover that significantly, should we say? Absolutely. So we've got this overweight position in the fund. Everyone knows about it. Japanese stock market's gone back to a new 30-year high, and that's been damped massively by the yen going down again. But I would put it to you that if the Bank of Japan raises interest rates, the yen will go up. Because the bulk of the weakness in the yen is people borrowing in yen and putting money on deposit in high yielding currencies. 
So as soon as the Bank of Japan says, right, fine, we're not going to do the zero interest rate thing anymore, all the hedge funds who use that and the big financial services companies who take their yen and leave it on deposit in American Treasury bills at 4% are going to say, oh, we don't want the currency risk. And anyway, the interest rate arbitrage is closing. In fact, I would say if that does happen, and if it happens this summer, that could cause some nervousness in markets because the scale of that trade, the carry trade, is so big. Yeah, well, that's something to look out for. Now, of course, you invest your portfolio on a thematic basis. You don't invest on a regional basis. But I can't resist just asking you what your thoughts are about Europe, which has also been performing quite well. Obviously, we've survived the winter. We've survived so far the Ukraine war and so on, which had a sentiment effect, perhaps. What are your thoughts about the European companies that you own? And if you have any thoughts about Europe as an area? Yeah, so just talking about continental Europe, not the UK. Yeah, we were delighted to find uh, that our valuation approach was throwing up uh, some stocks as very good value around last October, November. Again, this isn't very long ago, but you might remember that people are talking about us running out of gas, people having to turn the lights off in Europe, tell factories to close down. So fortunately, yes, some European industrial companies became very, very cheap and some of the best European industrial companies. So we bought a decent sized position in Schneider, which is one of the world's leading electrical engineers, beneficiary from automation, which is one of our themes, but also a very big beneficiary from energy transition. As we re-engineer what fuel we use, we're going to be using a lot more electricity in the system all the way through. And so anybody who does electrical engineering benefits from smart grid developments or factory automation developments or or even just how we wire our homes with heat pumps rather than gas boilers eventually, all that stuff. The amount of electrical engineering needed in the world is going up. So we picked that up and it's performed extremely well already. It had very good figures. And similarly, though it took us a little while longer, and I certainly wouldn't call this company one of Europe's great companies, given its history in the last 20 years, but we think that this is an elephant showing signs of learning how to dance again, is Siemens. Now, Siemens has been a dreadful stock <laughs> over most of my career, but the new management over the last five years has done really quite a remarkable job of simplifying the company, increasing the amount of software it does, increasing the amount of exposure it has to energy transition. So yes, at the moment, we've got 15% of the portfolio in European equities. I think that's the highest weighting we've had since we took over the trust in 2014. And it was just because better value for money is, was there. The economies of Europe at the moment, I'd say, not kicking on all that well. So I'm not sure that the European part of our portfolio is necessarily an area I'd want to add to for the next six months. The stocks are cheaper, but they're not so cheap that the lack of growth makes up for it. And so I'll just throw in, I'm afraid, a bit of a word on the UK from that point of view. Do mention the UK. Please mention the UK, because nobody else wants to. (laughs) The stocks, again, are a lot cheaper, but the prospects, I'm afraid, are quite worrying. Again, the persistency of inflation in the UK that I remember living with for most of my first 20 years in the city will affect and justify the lower rating of UK stocks. Inflation destroys value for shareholders. And it it destroys it every year. And so good stocks with really good businesses, new products coming through who can pass on price pressures, they will be fine and they will make you money. But your average UK stock 
if the UK carries on having higher interest rates and more inflation in other markets, will probably struggle to perform compared with the other opportunities that I have, particularly the value opportunity in Japan, where a bit of inflation is good news and the prospect of persistent high inflation just isn't there. That's a depressing thought. So if we look ahead from here, what do you actually think is going to happen? I mean, you don't have any gearing in the trust. You've always emphasized the fact that you're looking for low volatile returns based on relatively high quality stocks. Are you kind of still slightly pessimistic about where we might be going in terms of markets overall? Or are you seeing some of these positive signs that uh, some others claim to be seeing at the moment? I would say that I have a much more cautious outlook than the market at the moment. Because the scale of the debt in the system is so high that any small missteps, any small unexpected events tend to cause quite big waves and quite big shocks to the value of your savings. And so, you know, central banks have been supporting markets for most of the last 10 years and they're having to back off. So these shock absorbers have gone. Secondly, you've got some inflation in the system. And I think it's very, very unwise to invest on the basis that it just goes away. It also means that investors have a choice to leave some money in bonds. I wouldn't recommend it because in real terms, they're going to lose money. But if they want absolute security about their income, nominal income, <laughs> you get it in a bond. So the choices are there and they slightly change the maths. So what I think is key here is during a period of inflation, what I remember from the 90s, investing in the 90s and investing in the 2000s, when we had 4% inflation, 6% interest rates, I mean, not a million miles away from the conditions we got today. But this is the key thing in investing, will be the key thing in investing for the next 10 years. Try to make sure you've got some balance. Don't have all your eggs in one basket. I know these are old adages. And so by having that sort of balance around the world and between different themes and different aspects of investing which aren't correlated, then you can avoid being too badly hit when things go wrong and still benefit from markets which, which should carry on growing. I can't help but finish by saying, obviously, you've decided to retire from fund management. You're not quite of the same age as Warren Buffett. You're still a good three or four decades short of his age. <laughs> so what are you going to be doing? Would you be vain enough to interpret the fact that your shares in your trust have currently gone to a discount, because they haven't been for a number of years, due to the loss of Edelson effect? Would that be a correct interpretation? Well, some people may see it that way, but I should point out that I think you've made the point as well that most investment trusts have gone for a discount recently. So perhaps my retirement was unfortunately announced from Artemis. Uh, it was announced at a point when most investment trusts were <laughs> discounts were going out. And it's quite difficult to keep a premium on a trust when other very well-run trusts are trading on 12 and 14% discounts. You know, There is value for money in the trust sector as a whole, I'm sure you'd agree. Now, I'm very much looking forward to stepping back for a while. You know, the savings of the future, particularly during a period of inflation, is a puzzle everyone will face. And uh, it's still a puzzle where I hope to learn better solutions for the future. And it's something I'll have to do with my own money. So I think that there are some big challenges and probably there's need for some slightly changed solutions. But you can never get away from stock picking. You know, whatever shape of fund or wrapper or investment plan people come up with, whatever the tax advantages of this rather than that. Um, if you pick good stocks and you leave your money in good stocks, you'll get wealthier. If you don't, you'll probably slowly see your wealth eroded by inflation. And so um, I'll still have that puzzle to sort out in future.
I was able to catch up recently with Paul and Richard Pindar, who are respectively the chairman and CEO of Literacy Capital PLC, which listed on the London market only in June 2021 and qualified for investment trust status about a year ago. It has been arguably the most successful recent IPO we've had in the investment trust sector, having listed 160p and currently trading at 486p as I speak. In other words, it's tripled in value over the time since launch. It is a private equity trust, but it's one that's very different from other private equity trusts in a number of respects. First of all, it is still relatively small, about 280 million market cap. It has a management fee of just 90 basis points, 0.9%, and no performance fee, unlike the 2 and 20 model that uh, many listed private equity trusts still pursue. It doesn't pay a dividend, and it has a relatively concentrated portfolio with uh, its three largest holdings currently accounting for 50% of its portfolio. Most of those holdings in the form of buyouts rather than early stage capital, which it has been reducing as part of a conscious strategic decision. Paul Pinder is the founder and chairman of Literacy Capital, and his son Richard is the CEO, and together they, with other family members, own a significant chunk of the equity. But it has been a terrific performer, and the fact that it now trades at a premium again, having moved to a discount last year, is in marked contrast to the performance of many other listed private equity trusts, which, as we know, are on big discounts of, in some cases, 40 to 50%. The shares also this year are up by around 30%, which again compares well with most other investment trusts. Literary Capital was featured for the subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle. We did an extended interview with them in November last year, which fills in a lot of the background to the trust and how it's come to be the animal that it is today. But today, I just thought I'd start by asking Paul Pinder, the chairman, to explain, as briefly as possible, what makes Literacy Capital so distinctive when compared to its peers. I think there's probably a couple of questions there, Jonathan. So just first, factually, I don't want to sound as if we're showing off, but actually we're up threefold since IPO in June 21. So investors have had three times the money. I guess in terms of the comments about ourselves, we've got a kind of very established model for what we are looking to do. And also we try and apply it very consistently. And so again, your listeners will have heard six months ago of essentially, we're looking to find what we think are potentially interesting smaller businesses, which are often going through a point of change. So it may be that founders are looking to retire, or it may be succession opportunities where they're handing over to look, looking to hand over to the next generation. Or it could indeed be lifetime events where people are looking maybe to look abroad or or even unfortunately through either death or divorce. And what we're looking to do is to take fundamentally sound businesses and then to try to professionalise them and to take a longer term view of what can be done to develop and build that business. And I feel we've got a number of advantages over what I call traditional private equity. So for the fact that we're an investment trust, we're a closed end fund, and effectively we have an unlimited life to the fund, means that we don't need to go into an investment with a view that just says, well, we're going to do this for two or three years and try and make two or three times our money. We go into an investment saying, let's take an evergreen view of this, but let's just try and build a great business. And if it takes us five, seven or 10 years, then that's absolutely fine. But we're not looking to make two or three times our money. We're looking to make 10, 20, 30 times our money. 
And then I think there's a number of different things that we look to do. So at the most basic level is find fundamentally good businesses. Secondly, buy them on economically sensible terms. So we don't try and get involved in auctions or things where we're going to overpay. Thirdly, look to see what we can bring to the party in terms of skills and expertise. So across our portfolio, we've now added in probably 50 plus professionals into those businesses to allow them and help them to scale. We've also helped them with practical things like M&A. And we also assist in providing advice to our management teams and even just things such as giving them confidence to take the next step, if you like, in the journey. And I think the other thing I would say also is, you know, we treat our management teams as friends and colleagues. We don't treat them as a necessary evil that you have to have. We treat them as the people that are really the architects of the value that we create. And I guess what I would say on the back of all of those things is it has allowed us to already build. We have 18 companies in the portfolio today, but it's allowed us to build some very fine, very successful businesses, which are effectively underpinning the NAV growth that you've seen. Final comment from me, simply because you've referred to other PE funds. I think one of the reasons or a key reason why some of the other PE funds have fallen to big discounts is I think investors are unsure about the valuations that have been applied to some of the underlying investments. And if you look at those funds, then typically they're valuing their businesses at something between 15 and 27 times EBITDA. I think that's caused investors maybe a little bit of concern. We have got the lowest valuations of any listed investment trust. So our portfolio is valued at an average EBITDA of 8.5 times. So I think that provides investors with a high degree of confidence. And secondly, where there have been events, I feel like either refinancings or sale of business, then we have a track record of those events happening at a very material premium to the previously stated valuation. And again, I think that gives investors confidence. So sorry for a very long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully we've tackled most of what you were looking for us to tackle. Indeed you have, and a bit more besides. Perhaps I could ask you then, uh, Richard, as the CEO, just to bring us an update on the first quarter of this year, where you, I think, uh, made a very successful realisation of one of your investments and used that to reduce your debt at the fund level. Perhaps you could just explain the thinking around that particular transaction and whether that's uh, going to be a template for uh, some of the other companies in your portfolio, given you saying you have an ambition to maybe stick around for 25, 30 years in some cases. Yeah, it's a good question, Jonathan. So, you know, Q1 of this year, net assets in the fact sheet for that period were up just over 11%. A good proportion of that was the uplift that was delivered from the sale of Kernel. So we we sold most of our interest in Kernel in March, so obviously fell within Q1. It was an important transaction really for us in several respects. I guess, firstly, it, it validated the valuations again. So it was a 49% premium to the carrying value that we had at the end of 2022. So that was obviously important. Secondly, we made approximately 10 times our money in just over four and a half years. So again, prove that we can make the types of returns that we're seeking to make. The transaction itself was effectively driven by wishes of management. We'd helped to assemble a really strong team. The business had, had grown really nicely from 50 people to 300 people. It had done one piece of MA that was, again, very accretive, very sensible piece of MA, which added a lot of value to the group. On the back of that transaction, we've had inbound interest from different businesses because it was probably the first major case study that we'd gone from start to finish. And again, it, it also touches on some of your questions to Paul around why the NAV growth has been so strong. I guess the reason the NAV growth has been so good following the listing 
was that we had at the point that we listed a collection of businesses that were maturing. So they were kind of through the worst period or the the J curve. We were reasonably well fully deployed in terms of proportion of capital that was invested, you know, rather than listing as a cash shell, which many investment trusts do. And, you, you know, we'd gone through that period as a private investment company. So yeah, Q1 was a good quarter. Kernel was a, was a really successful event for us. We still retain a small proportion of the shareholding. And again, we're, we're very happy and supportive shareholders of that business. But again, kind of part of your question, I would expect that to become more common for the rest of, say, 2023 and 2024, where just naturally after four, five, six years of us being invested, we do take on board what the other shareholders of portfolio companies want. And in many instances, it makes sense for them when they're thinking about realizing certain investments that they've got in these companies that we might bring on board other investors to help cash out certain shareholders in these businesses. So yeah, I think it would be natural and and reasonable to assume, and we've referenced this in our report, our, our accounts, and also other fact sheets that we've published, that we would expect cash receipts from assets that literacy own to increase over the next year or two just by virtue of passage of time, maturity of the assets that we've got. So, um, yeah, we we would hope that we'll be able to repeat this with other portfolio companies in in the not-too-distant future. It's not unknown, shall we say, for private equity trusts to uh, sell a holding in order to try and validate their NAVs at that point. How important a factor was that for you, given that um, a lot of the private equity trusts have been trading at big discounts and you yourself went to uh, a discount last year, I think, for the first time since you were listed – how important is it to you to keep that discount to a minimum? And does it play a factor in the timing of your decisions about when to get rid of or divest to a certain extent some of your holdings? Yeah, I would say it's not a driver for what we do, but it's a helpful byproduct of what we do. I mean, Paul and I are big shareholders in the trust. Other members of the investment team and board of directors are large shareholders too. And so we're not going to take a short-term decision such as selling a business because we want to provide support for the valuations as such. But I think it's reasonably natural that, as I said, there will be more events and there will be more third-party transactions taking place, which help to provide a bit of a benchmark. Kernel isn't the only transaction we've completed since we listed. There's been several others, albeit there had been a reasonably long period, probably 18 months or so since the previous one. So I wouldn't expect it to be 18 months until the next one, but it is quite helpful given what has been going on in the market to be able to validate some of the carrying values. But yeah, our sole focus, if I'm honest, is doing what we think is the right thing for shareholders, growing NAV as strongly and as safely as we can do. So yeah, we don't tend to think shorter term around and we we would never go into a transaction purely on the basis of that. And again, unlike many other trusts, We've got no financial incentive to sell good businesses, so we've got no carried interest. And so, again, our sole focus is doing what we can to build NAV as well as we can. Yes, it's fair to say that I think you're very different in a number of respects from the way that other private equity trusts are structured and operate. And you mentioned one of them, not having the carried interest. You made some play of the fact that you have been reducing your exposure to what we call gross capital, very early stage businesses. Uh, That was a conscious decision you took a year ago. Can you perhaps explain the thinking behind that, uh, Paul? Yeah, I think when we first started up Literacy Capital, which was now kind of five years ago, Jonathan, we took the view that says, and I guess it's more of a traditional view, that if we're prepared to take more risk, then we'll get a greater reward. 
And obviously, with some early stage businesses, if they are successful, then you can make many multiples of money. And I think what we discovered over the passage of time was probably a couple of things, really. One was, if you do the kind of private equity deals that we do, and you structure the deals cleverly, then it's perfectly possible for your upside to be at least as good as some of the early stage deals, and in many instances, better. And again, I think it's kind of on the public record. If you look at, for example, the four largest businesses that we have in the portfolio today on a weighted average basis now that they're sitting at something like 15 times money on money. And so the kind of returns that we could make from private equity are at least as good as what we could make from early stage. And therefore, we kind of thought to ourselves, why would we take the risk of doing an early stage deal? So that's one consideration. The second consideration is one of the most precious commodities that we have on ourselves as managers is time. And we have a total team within Literacy Capital of eight people. Therefore, we're very focused on how we do use our time. And what we discovered was that early stage businesses tend to be very, very needy and they need an awful lot of support. Whereas if we go into the slightly more mature businesses, which are already profitable, although we tend to have to put a lot of time and effort in in the early period of the investment, as those businesses evolve and mature and get more and more established management teams, then we can back off and allow them to effectively have the freedom and the autonomy to develop their businesses. And so both from a point of view of financial risk and management time from literacy capital, we came to the conclusion that the smaller PE market was probably a better place to be than the early growth capital market. And that's a sort of permanent change rather than a tactical one? I think I would say it's a pretty permanent strategic change. And again, you know, I hate applying rules where they don't need to apply. And so as an example, we did do a smaller growth capital deal earlier this year. But we did it really because it had a whole combination of circumstances that were attractive to us, not least the fact that we'd actually known one of the founders for a long period of time. So knowing the management team that you're working with is very powerful. We also understood the industry pretty well. And we also thought that we were investing in an attractive valuation. So I wouldn't say never, but certainly our focus for the foreseeable future going forward is to continue to replicate the kind of deals that have been making the returns that Richard and I have described. That point on valuation is quite important. I agree with everything that Paul's just said. But again, one of the factors that we considered, and again, looking at the two types of investments, was the growth capital and the VC end of the market had become extremely hot two years ago, a year ago. And so again, it was a conscious decision that actually there's too much capital chasing not many opportunities and the valuations are too high and unattractive. And so hence, we turned the taps off there. And as Paul alluded to, we felt that Actually, the opportunity we looked at recently that we did complete made much more sense. And it was around the time when there was a deficit of capital available to invest in those types of businesses. And as such, the pricing and structure was more appealing. But I would agree, it's not going to become, again, bread and butter for us. It's going to remain ad hoc, I would say. And I would suspect 90% plus of what we would do will remain on the buyout side. There is a sort of big bad world out there, of course, while your trust is uh, flourishing. There's a big bad world out there. Bond yields are going up. Inflation is still very sticky. There's fears in some quarters of recession may or may not happen. What's your thinking about the fact that you, I think, uh, reduced your gearing last year? Is that because it's just not your natural state for you to have gearing at the fund level? Or is it because you actually have some concerns about the macro environment and what you're hearing from your companies, how they're trading and so on in the current environment? I'd say our, I guess, paying down gearing at a funds level 
was just driven by the timing of cash flows that we received from Colonel. So it wasn't a strategic choice, albeit it is interesting given what has gone on with base rates and obviously the interest rate we are now paying on our funds level facility. It does focus the mind when the cost of that facility goes upwards. And then that's obviously a consideration when that fund is then being potentially utilised and whether or not that's an attractive thing to do because the cost of using that debt is then obviously greater than it was, say, 12 months ago. I would suspect, again, our utilisation of the fund, there'll be peaks and some troughs. Obviously, we've completed an investment a couple of weeks ago. In order to do that, we've obviously had to make a drawing because we didn't have the cash available to fund it. So the next fact sheet, it will be reasonably obvious that the amount of capital that's drawn under the facility will have gone back up. But again, I wouldn't expect that to be permanent as and when we do have realisations that will be repaid back down. The level of debt we've got at a portfolio company level has remained fairly consistent, slightly above one times EBITDA. I wouldn't expect that to greatly change. We're pretty comfortable at that level. And again, it's interesting. I think you know many trusts do have debt that's significantly in excess of that. And I suspect that's also a factor when investors are looking at certain trusts. That's obviously going to damage equity returns if you've got more debt in the capital structures. So yeah, debt-wise at the moment, macro factors have not played a major part. But the one comment I would make, again, is the margins we've got or the portfolio companies have got in excess of 20%. They have been since we listed. So that has given our companies good protection, given where inflation is. And actually, if I'm honest, I don't think inflation has caused a major issue for our portfolio companies. So I would say we're reasonably relaxed on that front. Obviously, we would hope inflation not to increase from where it is today or remain too persistent. But if I'm honest, it hasn't had a major impact on profitability of our businesses. So it's, it's something we've been reasonably sanguine about over the last year or two. Okay, so perhaps, Paul, I could finish this brief chat with a, a question about the UK. You've been uh, operating in British business, UK business now for many, many years. Literacy Capital is your kind of post-first professional career activity, I suppose I could say that. What are your feelings about the UK as a country to invest in and where we are at the moment in the uh, interest rate and economic cycle? I think I would agree pretty much with what Richard's just said, to be honest, Jonathan. I think we're neither particularly bullish nor particularly depressed. I think the climate at the moment, obviously, it would be good for inflation to start to tick downwards. If that happens in due course, then obviously it would be helpful for interest rates to follow suit. I think there's obviously quite a lot of clamour in due course for reduction in level of taxation, which will obviously allow a greater degree, hopefully, of consumer spending. But, you know, commentators have been saying for some months that we were headed for a recession, and yet the recession hasn't arrived. And I kind of guess our sense at the moment of the UK economy is it's probably more resilient than a lot of people believe it is. Obviously, the outlook is harder to predict, but we're not in a state of great concern about it. And if you look across our top 10 investments, we have three businesses which are consumer facing Admittedly, they're in sectors which are probably very resilient. So two of them are focused on children's activities and one of them is focused on feeding animals. And so across those three, you've probably got areas of high priority for adults where they are going to look to continue to invest. But if you look at the numbers that are coming off those three businesses, which we look at on a weekly basis, they're all pretty attractive and they're all very resilient in the current climate. So I don't think we're foolhardy enough to believe that everything is easy out there. But equally, I think if you're careful and apply a reasonable degree of thought and research, I think there are good businesses to invest in and to help develop. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. 
I shall be away on holiday, as I've already mentioned, for a couple of weeks, but I very much look forward to having your company again when I return, at which point, no doubt, there will be more news and exciting events to discuss. Will the debt ceiling crisis be over? I suspect it will. What about this extraordinary AI-related bubble on Wall Street, if that is indeed what it is? Well, all that's to be found out, and no doubt there'll be plenty more new developments to talk about as well. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.